We begin today by asking from the Bible, according to, to God's perspective, what is love? Uh, that's what we're trying to get our heads around. What is a, a, a Bible-based, uh, God-saturated definition of love, the way he would define it? And so you're about to hear four different scripture readings, and uh, what, what I think these readings bring out is a four-step chain reaction of how God's love gets passed down to us, to the followers of Jesus Christ. And so let me just give you the steps and the text, and then uh, if, you've, if you've volunteered to read a text, I'll, I'll let you come on up and, and you can read for us. So the first step in this great chain reaction is you will hear that God himself is love. You're going to hear that as Krista reads 1 John 4, 7 through 21. It's actually in there twice. And then you'll uh, hear it in Exodus 34, 5 through 6, as Brian Morris reads for us. Then step two, we'll hear that the Father, who is love, loves the Son, and the Son, with that very love, loves his people. We'll hear both of those steps in John 17, 22 to 26, as Brian Catanzaro reads for us. And then the last step in this chain reaction, uh, as Sharon reads John 13, 34 through 35, we'll hear that God's people, Christians, actually love others in the exact same way that they've been loved by the Son. So God is love, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves his people, and his people now love with that same love. Those are the four steps that you'll hear. So Krista, could you come up and start us off? This is 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God, who does not love, does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in him abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar." For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Exodus 34, 5 to 8. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. 
the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no means, by no means, clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children into the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. John seventeen twenty two through 36. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see the glory that you have given to me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. John 13, verse 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if if you have love for one another. We just heard the word of the Lord. We'll spend most of our time this morning reflecting on the first text that was read, First uh, John 4, 7 through 21. Uh, we are going to walk through parts of that text, so it might help you to have your Bible open to First John chapter 4 um, as we go through it. Now, the goal of our uh, preaching series on love, and today's sermon in particular, really is twofold. We're trying to accomplish two things. The first is that we would gain a deeper, truer, more robust understanding of what love is. And then second, that that deeper understanding of love would propel us and motivate us to do great spirit-empowered acts of love. And when we talk about doing acts of love, that in itself is twofold. We can think about doing acts of love toward God, and we can think about doing acts of love toward people. And, and often those, those things cross, right? They, they share uh, m- many actions that we do are both to God and to people. But I think that begs the, the question, if, if one of our aims is to clarify and define biblical love, that begs the question, well, do we really need to do that? Uh, do we need to spend time defining love? Don't we all kind of know what love is? We have some of our children in the service with us today. You, you can ask my, uh, my two-and-a-half-year-old who loves you, and even at two-and-a-half, she knows, well, I can name names. I, I, I know somewhat what love is. Um, if you're six or if you're 10 or if you're 12, uh, you could probably tell me a little bit of what love is. And you might name uh, things like being kind to someone, appreciating them, including them, making them feel wanted. These are all ways that we show love, and that's right. But yet, I've, I've come to find that when the Bible speaks of love, it's speaking of something much deeper, much richer 
than our common conceptions of love. I've noticed that when I think, maybe I get to the end of a day or or I I get to a time uh, in the Word, I start to think, well, have I been a loving person recently? I I start to think, well, have I mistreated anybody recently? Have I uh, yelled at my kids maybe recently? Have I cheated anybody and, and... Sometimes uh, those things have happened, and, and other times I think, well, no, on, on the whole, I've been pretty kind, so I must be a loving person. Have, have you ever done that? Have you ever kind of examined yourself that way? Well, when we look at the Bible, we, we find that, that love runs much deeper than just a, a kind of common conception of kindness. Let me give you one example. Philippians 1, 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul is praying for love to Uh, abound in Christians. And so listen to uh, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Paul writes, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And here's what that looks like. With knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Do you hear all the different elements there that are are in this prayer for love to abound in Christians? Paul wants these people to abound in love with knowledge and with discernment and approving what's excellent, with purity, blamelessness, being filled with righteousness, and ultimately a love that results in worship. There there is so much more going on when it comes to biblical love than merely being kind to one another. Love isn't less than kindness, but it is much more. And it's important to get clarity on love because as we just heard Jesus say in John 13, people will know that we are his disciples or not by our love. And so if you are a Christian, Jesus expects just kind of baseline expectation that love is your calling card, that love is central to your identity and your character. Is it? (laughs) And at that point, some of us might want to ask, well, well, what, what kind of love is he talking about? Um, what, What does he mean when he says that love Will be, our, will be central to our identity and character. I think 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21 was written largely to clarify that issue, to clarify for us how we should think of love, what our definition of love should be. And there are three main points that John makes as he unpacks what it means in God's eyes to love. Here are the three points, and then we'll kind of take them one by one. First, God is the origin of love. Second, Jesus is the greatest display of God's love. And third, the Holy Spirit empowers God's people, empowers us to love like God. So if you just want to sum those up in like three words, the first point is all about the origin, second point is about display, and the third point is about power for love. So let's take those one at a time. First, the origin of love is God. The starting place of all love is God himself. Uh, You might have noticed that that's exactly where our text begins. In verse 7, 
It starts by John saying, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So where does love come from? Well, it comes from God. That's, that's what the first half of verse 7 says. And God is not a source, one of many sources of love. No, God is the source of love. And so when you find someone who loves like God, you've actually found someone who is deeply connected to that origin of love, to that source of love. They're connected to God. That's what the second half of verse 7 says. John says, and, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, the reason that love is from God is because, as verses 8 and 16 tell us, God is love. Love is an essential part of God's essence. It's what he is. God is love. And so that's why when Moses, in Exodus 34, hears who God is and and what God's about, the first words out of God's mouth and his self-description are these, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is love. Now, I want us to notice something. John does not say God is loving. He says God is love. I think that's a really important distinction for us to to get right, and here's why. If the text said God is loving, well, that means that we should take everything we know about love and attribute it to God. And so we might think about how our parents did or didn't love us growing up. Or perhaps we'd think of how our spouse does or doesn't love us in the way we'd like. Maybe you have a best friend who who loves you. Maybe you had a childhood pet that you loved dearly. Maybe we'd think of what two people in love should feel for one another. And if God was loving, we'd take whatever our experiences have taught us about love and we'd attribute them to God. We'd say, well, if if God is loving, then he must be kind of like those things. He, he, He must be kind of like that. That's what we do if God wrote, if if John wrote, God is loving. I think a lot of people treat the words God is love as if it said God is loving, and it leads to all kinds of misconceptions about God. God is not like your best friend in many respects. He is not like the best earthly parent. He outshines even the deepest human love. We go all kinds of wrong ways when we think God is love means that God is loving. When John says God is love, he's not saying to define God by what you know of love. He's saying to define love by what you know of God. If God is love, then it's only as you know God that you will know what love is. You see, as Christians, we can't define love by our families. We can't define love by notions of our childhood or our spouses or our friends or our ideas of romance. Love is what God alone is like. 
God is the true origin of all loves. All those things may contain shadows of love, but only God is the origin of love. He is who should define love for us. That's what I think John means when he writes, God is love. And so this means that the only way for us to rightly understand love and the only way for us to become loving people in this way is to grow in our knowledge of God, which is exactly where John goes. Second half of verse 7, verse 8, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And the inverse is also true. Verse 8, anyone who does not love, well, they don't know God. Because God is love. And so do you see how knowing God comes first, and then love is a result. Knowing love is a result. The key to growing in love is to grow in knowing God, the God who is love. So so how do we do that? How can we know this God of love in a way that redefines our notion of love and enables us to love like God loves? Where do we turn? That's our second point. Jesus Christ, specifically his sinless life, his atoning death, and his resurrection from the dead is the great display of God's love. That's where we turn. That's where we go to see this love displayed in the way God defines it. The extent that we know and feel the weight of what God did at the cross is the extent to which we will understand love. Verse 9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest. Now kids, if you don't know what that word manifest means, it just means it's been clearly perceived, it's been fully shown, it's been displayed. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. You see, brothers and sisters, without Jesus, we are dead to God spiritually. And we are as good as dead physically. Our many, many sins have separated us from the God of love. We are at odds with him. He created us, yes, in love by giving us life and breath, every possession or ability we have. And yet, every one of us, every man, woman, and child has chosen to disregard his commands. We've chosen to cast off his authority. We have chosen to live our own way. Now, even in human families, there is a point where a person strays so far into destructive behaviors that protecting the family requires them to leave. It's heartbreaking when it happens. Could be repeated drug use, Maybe it's tendencies toward violence and physical abuse. Maybe it's mixing with dangerous people and bringing them into the home. But in these situations, as long as the family member willingly brings their evil into the house, no one is safe. And so, for the protection of the family, they are asked to leave the home. Sin 
is very destructive. All sin is very destructive. The world was a perfect place before sin. No sickness, no death, no pain, no sorrow of any kind. And yet if we turn on the nightly news, what do we see now? All of this is the result of sin. And in order for God to restore his good creation, he must judge the sin that threatens it and punish the sinners who willingly bring this evil and destruction into his world. And that's simply what hell is. God lovingly protects his creation from sinners when he sends sinners, people like you and me, to hell. Now, God is very clear. It does not please him to judge the wicked, Ezekiel 33, verse 11. But until he does, the world will never be what it was meant to be. It will always be broken. It will always have pain. It will always have sadness. Because God is righteous, he is right to punish sinners in hell forever. Now, John knows, and we know, that because God is love, no sinner needs to face that punishment. Let's turn to verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. You can live. Hell is not the only destination because the love of God was made manifest. Jesus was sent. How can sinners live? Verse 10, he says it again a slightly different way. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, in other words, Jesus willingly left heaven. Now just stop there for a second. He willingly left heaven. We're all trying to get there out of this place. We're trying to either, either get there by faith or, or even the worldly uh, that we see among us are trying to build their own paradise here. Jesus left paradise to come to this place of brokenness and sorrow as a homeless Jewish rabbi. And he didn't come here to kick back with his friends. He came to be abandoned by those friends, rejected by the very people he was coming to save. He came to subject himself to professional professional torturers, which is what the Romans were, to be nailed to a cross, lifted from the earth, hanging naked in agony. The only way he could gasp for breath is to push up on the nails driven through his feet or pull himself by the spikes through his arms. And guess what? That wasn't the worst part. As he hung in physical agony, the wrath of God for every sin that we have committed was laid upon Jesus. 
He faced it all. This is why he came. God sent Jesus, says John. He came willingly to do that. Why? If if you could climb inside the heart of God in that moment, what would you find at the cross? You would not find some moral obligation that this was the right thing to do and so I will do it. You would find love. You would find compassion. He loved you. That's why the cross happened. We were blinded to the hopelessness of our future, but God knew. God saw where we were headed. He saw that we, though we thought we were making choices that were cool or fun or didn't hurt anybody, all the while, our sinful choices were destructive. They were tarnishing his good world And they were putting us under his judgment. Jesus chose the cross. Because God loved his people so much, he didn't want us to meet that end. Jesus' sacrifice means that anyone can experience full forgiveness. All of their sins washed away. The ones we think are little, the ones we think are great, Anyone can experience such a great transformation that you are no longer defined by your sin. You're no longer part of the degrading of creation, but you are defined by Christ's righteousness. You are actually made fit for the restoration of creation, to live in that place where sorrow and pain do not exist. And all of that is the result of love on behalf of God. Now, is that what you think about when you think about the love of God? We've probably all thought at one point or another, well, if God loved me, he'd give me blank, or he'd do this thing. How do you fill in that blank? And when you think about that thing, can it even come close to God's display of love on the cross? However you would prefer God to prove his love for you, does it require him to leave all that he has? Does it require him to choose pain, agony, suffering, torment, scorn, and abandonment to save you from the consequences of your own choices? Is that the way you want God to prove his love for you? Because that's the way he proves his love for you. The cross is the great display of God's love, and it beckons us all to come and experience the sin-atoning love of God. It helps fill out our definition of what does it mean to love? The cross is what it means to love. Now this text, John chapter 4, is all about getting God's love, the the, the kind of love that we see displayed at the cross, the kind that chooses self-sacrifice and suffering for the good of others, that kind of love, getting that kind of love inside you and inside me. We saw that as early as verse 7, didn't we? 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. That's John's aim. Let us love one another with this kind of love. John's definition of a Christian is someone who loves the way that God loves. Look at verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. It's just what it means to be a Christian. Now lay that verse on top of what we've just been talking about regarding the display of God's love at the cross. A Christian is someone who loves God and loves people so much that they are willing to face pain and suffering and abandonment and mistreatment and more if that's what it takes to love. Because that's the very love that we've been loved with by God. Sometimes we look at the display of God's love on the cross and think, well, I could never love anyone like that. Have you ever thought that? I I think we can understand where those sentiments come from, and yet, if we think that, we need to be really careful, don't we? Because John's whole point is, actually, you should. (laughs) If you're a Christian, you should love others like that. In John's mind, a Christian who doesn't love like Jesus, is just a contradiction in terms. It's a paradox. This is what we're called to do. We do it imperfectly, sure, but this is our identity. John and and we this morning heard it from Jesus' own mouth in John 13, 34, where Jesus says, just as I have loved you, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. How does this work? I mean, we're going to leave from this place. We're we're going to get up from our seats and start interacting with each other. And that's the opportunity to start doing this. What are you going to do? How do we do this? Well, for John, it's actually pretty simple. The way you and I get God's love inside of us is to get God inside of us. Verse 12 tells us that if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And then verse 13 picks up on this topic of abiding. It says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And so the love that was displayed by God at the cross is to come out of our life as God abides in us through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who provides the power, the motivation, the unction to love like God loves. Now, there are many texts that we could turn to to try to unpack how this works. It's a lifelong endeavor, I think, to unpack how this looks. It can operate so many different ways. There's the walking by the Spirit in Galatians 5. There's sowing to the Spirit in Galatians 6. There's putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit in Romans 8. I mean, all of these examples of how love comes out of us as the Spirit abides in us. But I just want to take our last few moments together, stay within the bounds of John's letter, 1 John, 
and ask, how does John envision the Spirit to empower us to love? How does the Spirit prompt God-like love in us? So we'll just hit these very briefly. And I'd, I'd encourage you, read First John cover to cover. It's not that long of a book. And be looking for these because they're peppered all throughout the book. The Spirit empowers God-like love as we first meditate on the Spirit-inspired Word of God. First John 2.24 Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abide in, abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. You too will abide in the God of love. Well, what, God's, what John's audience heard from the beginning was the gospel. It was the teaching of the apostles. And so, in other words, there's a direct link between God's word abiding in you and the God of love abiding in you and, and, and coming out through your life. The Bible itself is a story of how a holy God tirelessly loves wayward people. The Old and New Testaments are full of historic evidence of God's long-suffering, steadfast love. The love that was clearly displayed at the cross is foreshadowed and echoed throughout every page of the Bible. Verse 18 of our text said, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And that even on the day of judgment, those who, who know God's love do not need to fear his judgment. You see, as, as the Spirit brings out the love of God on every page of Scripture, you'll be more confident in God's love for you. And as a result, your confidence in God's love will sever fear and selfishness, and anxiety, and dozens of other things that kill your ability to love other people sacrificially. The more the Spirit opens our eyes to the Word of God and and the love that every page contains, the greater capacity, the greater power we will have to love. So the Spirit empowers God-like love when we meditate on the Spirit-inspired Word He also empowers God's love as we keep God's commands. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. The commands of God are not meant to burden us with responsibility. They are given to teach us how to love. Jesus said in Matthew 22 that all the law and the prophets depend on loving God and loving neighbor. If obedience expresses love for God and for neighbor, well then disobedience must in some measure express hatred or lack of love to God and or neighbor. And so the Holy Spirit helps us love like God loves, by making us zealous to obey God's commands. Ezekiel 36, 27 says, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That has everything to do with love. How else are you going to love God and neighbor? But to obey his rules, to follow his statutes. Do we view God's commands as life-giving, liberating instructions on how to love? 
Or do we tend to find them burdensome? If you tend to find them burdensome, read Psalm 119 because the author got it just right. Verse 40, Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. There are dozens of statements like that through Psalm 119. Love your precepts. Love your commandments. I want to walk in the way of obedience. I'm zealous for it, God. So the Spirit empowers love when we meditate on the Word, as we keep God's commandments, and and lastly, as we confess Jesus Christ. And we saw this in our text. I actually didn't see this until it was read this morning, but let me point it out for you. I thought it was verse 15. Thank you, Ryan. This is, this is the part of the sermon that I'm winging a little bit. Yeah, verse 15. Thank you, buddy. Whoever confesses, so there's the word, confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So there we see the principle of abiding for those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, John says it again In chapter 4, verse 2, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God, contrary to other spirits, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh is from God. And so as the Spirit abides in us, one of the primary ways that that expresses itself is by Christians confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and has come. Now, the kind of confessing that John has in mind here, it's not some private intellectual agreement that Jesus Christ has indeed come in the flesh. Like, yes, I believe that that's historically true, that he came in the flesh. No, no, no. The the Greek word for confess, it's actually a compound word. A compound word is like dog house made up of dog and house, and you get this house that the dog lives in. Um, It's a compound word for speak together. That's what confess means, speak together together. And so confessing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is an active, public, demonstrative, regular expression and statement of the truth of the gospel. It's a lifestyle of recounting personally all that God has accomplished for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we express that to unbelievers and believers alike. It might be over casual conversation and coffee. It might be by leading a Bible study in your neighborhood. It might be by exhorting a straying brother or sister to remain faithful to Jesus Christ, to remember what the gospel has given them. It can look many different ways, but you know that someone is abiding in the Spirit and that the Spirit abides in them when they want to help others understand the gospel, when they want to help others fathom the love that God has for them and has displayed for them at the cross. That's what it means to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That often takes more than one conversation, and it's often difficult. It might mean that you walk with someone through their suffering. It might mean entering into the very things that cause them fear and anxiety. 
it will probably mean risking your reputation. And if the New Testament is any model, it will certainly mean facing or risking rejection. Are you willing to do that? Is that the kind of lifestyle you want? Confessing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. You see, after seeing the love that God has for us more clearly, are we willing to suffer abandonment, rejection, and scorn so that others may know the wonders of this God and his love? Are we asking his Holy Spirit to empower us to love people like that? Not doing it because, well, this is the good Christian thing to do, and so I better gut it out, even though inwardly I'm complaining about it. No, no, no. You open up the heart of God at the cross, you find love. I love these people. That's what's motivating me to do it. Do we confess Jesus like that? Oh, that we would. Confessing that Jesus has come in the flesh requires a love that is cross-shaped. A love that is reminiscent of how Jesus loves you. And so when we know that God is the origin of love, when we see the great display of God's love at the cross, when we experience the power of the Holy Spirit to love the way that God loves because he abides in us, we follow in the very footsteps of Jesus. People will know that we are his disciples Because they'll experience a love from us that cannot be our own. It can only be explained by God abiding in us. It's a supernatural kind of love. Let's pray to that end together. I'll begin praying for us. And then I just welcome any prayers that you have of confession or petition to God. Let's begin praying together. Lord, there are so many more words that could be said about what we read here in 1 John chapter 4. So many other ways we could meditate on, consider, apply what it means to know your love and to love like you love. We have merely begun that task. And God, I I pray that as we consider what we've heard and as we go on from here, the, the truth and the realities that we see in this text wouldn't, wouldn't be some myth or legend that actually never happens, but would be a daily experience for us. That we would be overcome in wonder as we see your spirit working out Christ-like love in us. That we would find ourselves more willing to suffer, to be rejected, to give up the things that we hold so dear because of our love for others and because we want them to know you. Lord, be at work within us. We are yours. We are your people. Help us love like you have loved.